there's a whole range of ways in which God would call uh, people in the Old Testament, but generally it was through the anointing. So uh, the text that I plan to read today is taken from 1 Samuel 16. In the interest of time, I'm not going to read the entire passage from 1 through 13, but this is when the Lord came to Samuel and said, go anoint that I've rejected Saul, go anoint David. Actually, he said, go anoint. Yeah, well, hey, let, 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 let me start at verse 1. How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Now, notice that he said, fill. So like, how big was the horn? Well, was it this tiny little, like a little half-ounce bottle? It probably was a horn, <laughs> and, and it was full. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Go to Jesse the Bethlehemite. And uh, then he said, you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So he came to Bethlehem. They were kind of shook up when he came because, hey, here comes the prophet. Have we done something wrong? They said, do you come in peace? And he said, yes, I do. Get your sons together. I would like to offer a sacrifice. So he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to a sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and tall, or of great stature. Actually, no, like his brothers. No, he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Okay, so what we need to do here at Grace Point is identify a pastor. Imagine if God sent a modern-day Samuel, a wizened old man who came in through the door, and he came up here, and he lined up all the brethren, and they walked past as they walked past, he would stand here with his horn. And then uh, when the one came whom the Lord chose, he would anoint him. So why doesn't God do that anymore? That's how it used to be in the Old Testament. He doesn't send Samuel because something changed. But what? In uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and the spirit of God dwells in you? You see in the Old Testament the Spirit of God would come upon a prophet for a time and with a message for a specific event. But he was not indwelt by the God's Holy Spirit in the way in which we are today. And it's expressed in this way, do you not know that you are God's temple? By the way, I'm hoping sometime later to expand upon this slide here and this question, do you not know that you are God's temple in this respect? So, so what was it that was the accusation brought against Jesus 
when he was brought before Pilate, or before the, the Sanhedrin. What did they say? They got different witnesses, but none of them agreed. And then finally they found some, and what they said was, this man said that he will tear down the temple and rebuild it again in three days. But the point is this uh, that I want for us to think about is that this was the, actually the charge that was brought against Jesus. And I think there is spiritual significance in this. If you think about all the way in which, the ways in which Jesus related with the temple, there was some real spiritual significance in the fact that when it came time to judge Jesus and find a reason to put him to death, the only argument that could, the charge that could be brought against him was that he said he would tear down the temple. And that was accurate. You see, there's a different temple that God dwells in. It's us. There's something really significant in all of this. In fact, I started, I started a, a file uh, called New Temple People. I'm proposing that we are new temple people, but we'll expand more on that uh, someday. But the Spirit of God dwells with, with, within us. We are God's temple. And so in 2022, at Grace Point Church in Dover, Ohio, God works through his people instead of his prophets to identify church leaders. Now, I want to just mention in passing, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. It's actually pretty interesting to read through these several chapters here and see how that, you know, like, why, why did Samuel think Eliab, when he appeared, that must be the one? Because he was, he was a big guy. I think, uh, we've already talked about, uh, you know, families of giants here this morning. He was a big, he was a big guy. And they kind of like Saul, when he was anointed, stood head and shoulders above other men. He was too. This was his replacement. And so here comes this evidently small guy who was out, uh, as Eliab put it later, when David came to visit him when they were in the army, when David then killed Goliath, he said, what are you doing away from those few sheep that you care for? Like really kind of like it's the big guy, like uh, dissing the small guy. And uh, But the lesson is that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We must rise above our natural inclination to look upon outward appearance as we identify a pastor for our church. We must seek to exercise spiritual discernment regarding a man's inner qualities. When you read through those passages in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, you read through the qualities of the person that is called to be a pastor. Not all of them, some of them deal with his external life. So that's important too, that too. But it essentially speaks to his inner qualities. So so we read in uh, of three ways in the text in which in the New Testament leaders were called. One of them was by Lot. This is in Acts 1 when Judas was replaced. This was prior to the to Pentecost, prior to the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. They said we should we should appoint someone to this office and so they cast a lot between two equally qualified brethren, the, quali- the, the qualifications there were it had to be someone that was with them from the beginning, meaning had walked with them as a disciple during all of uh, 
this time that Jesus was on earth. So they cast a lot. The second was by congregational selection. This is in Acts 6, 1 through 7, where the text says, look out among you. And then uh, uh, also by existing church leaders, selection and appointment. Uh, this is on Paul's missionary journey. So basically what I want to say is a congregation must discern which of these met- methods they will use. All of those methods are used by various churches today. All of them who say we're doing it based on a biblical pattern, all of which are correct. So it's not like, okay, figure out one. I think there are some benefits and uh, or so strengths and weaknesses to different ones, but uh, We'll talk more about, Sean will later be covering the actual process. Three noteworthy points. In all the Acts texts, God always worked through the church and or existing church leaders, usually the founders or church planters. Never in those incidents, in those times when the texts, the New Testament text tells us that church leaders were called, there was never a time when someone kind of like unilaterally, on his own, said, I am called. It was always done through the church. Two, since the text does not prescribe one specific way of identifying church leaders, it leaves some room for discernment. Local congregations must agree on a process and then follow it in unity. And three, perhaps the lesson is that God is not as concerned about the method of selecting church leaders as he is about their qualifications. Or he would, because he's very specific about the qualifications, kind of leaves it open regarding the actual process. So we discern the best way for us. Cyprian, writing uh, regarding ordination in about 250 AD in Carthage, Africa, said, For a proper ordination, all the neighboring overseers and bishops throughout the province should assemble with the congregation. Apparently, in Carthage, Africa, at that time in church history, the congregation did the selection, followed by ordination by existing church leaders in the home church and in the surrounding area, which sounds kind of the way we generally would. I'm going to move on uh, and talk about some weaknesses and strengths here. So one of the weaknesses of the method in which we use is the lack of formal training. And I would say that it makes us, us as a people, us as churches, calling people, uh, calling our pastors from among us without formal training makes us susceptible in some ways to what the Bible calls every wind of doctrine. What I mean by this is that historically I propose that we have been better at looking over here when we as Conservative Anabaptist churches have been better at looking over here on the more on the traditional side and saying we are not like those traditional people, and then we look over here and we see at, we see a slippery slope of liberalism, and we say and we're not like those either. Well, then what are we? Well, we're not like this, and we're not like this. So we're actually better at saying what we are not than what we are, and this comes somewhat from the lack of formal training. So that is a weakness. But there is a corresponding strength in what I'll call pastoral apprenticing, in where because we have plural, a plural ministry, we have, we call pastors 
that are young men to walk alongside their older, more experienced brothers. And so there's never a time when you just like start new with a completely new group. There's always this overlap of experience and teaching and so on. So we have a a strength in that we have a pastoral apprenticing program, if you will. Okay, now there's a lack of what I call the lack of letters. Let me tell you what I'm thinking here. Some years ago, I was uh, I was at a uh, at any at a training event, interacting with uh, quite a number of pastors and Christian workers. And there was one man in that event that was uh, this was in California, so it was like they they had never seen Amish before, and so they were kind of curious, like how we do thi- how we do things. There was one man that we called him uh, Alphabet, kind of not to his face, but he was 40-something, and he was still in school. And he had, I'm not sure how many degrees, but letters behind his name, you know, and he was still in school. And he said, I just like learning. Well, like, when do you actually use the, the learning? Well, he said, I just like learning. But he pointed something out. And then they talked about uh, ordination, and I said that I'm a pastor. Well, how were, like... What kind of training do you have? Like, how, how are you? What, in, in what area is your degree? And by, the, by now, I'm feeling kind of like backwoodsy. And so I kind of explained all this. And then uh, he and in particular one other brother came to me and said, our churches have to rely on the letters. Because when it comes time to ordain a pastor, we don't call from among the brothers whom we know. We call strangers, people we have no idea. The only reason, the only way we know that they're actually qualified to provide care for our souls is by the letters behind their names. And it would be much, and that can work, it does work, but there's also a certain amount of casualties that just happen. When a stranger comes into the congregation to lead the congregation and you have no idea who he is. And so if you as a brotherhood have the ability and practice of looking among yourselves and selecting someone that you know, that is a great strength. Is it serving you well? And actually, yes, it, it is. It, it has its weaknesses, and uh, but it's serving us well. So let's think about it this way. You know, what if uh, Brother Sean got up here and announced that, uh, okay, we need a pastor. So we decided that we're going to uh, vote among uh, the brothers at the Harmony Christian Fellowship in uh, Kennedyville, Maryland. I mean, you would say, well, you don't know those people. I mean, how can we vote? Well, that's kind of the way this is. So there's a, the pick out from among you. This is language taken from Acts 6, where we know each other. And we evaluate one another based on how they live their lives is a great strength. One of the weaknesses is lack of time. And I'm, uh, uh, I put two headings here. So this is teaching for some other time due to a lack of it just now, but put it under the heading of the unmuzzled ox. So, uh, I don't mean to like, uh, use an analogy where the pastors are oxen. Okay, but that this is the framework within which the Apostle Paul writes at least uh, two times in the New Testament where he talks about the ox that is unmuzzled should be unmuzzled because, and he said because, and he used the words of Jesus here, that the laborer is worthy of his hire. 
So my point is this, but, but, and, but we have chosen, and then he says, are only Barnabas and I not allowed to live from the gospel? But then he says, but we've chosen to not exercise that privilege. And that's the method in which we as Anabaptist people have chosen to use. Bivocational pastors, a multiple team that we pick from among us, rather than hiring someone with letters that we don't know and paying him a salary. So if those two models, there are strengths and there are weaknesses, I would just plead or like make this plea to the congregation. Uh, by the way, I'm too old to benefit from any of this, so it's not like I, so I can get up here and say this, that when young men are called to ministry, we as a congregation have a duty to enable that they have time to go to places like Faith Builders or Zolikan or the other kinds of training, places where you can get training that will pay back in wonderful ways to the congregation and provide for them or enable them to have the time to take off from work, to get training, and to do the work of ministry. We've already mentioned the plural ministry team. Some closing thoughts, some questions. Does any candidate who is nominated have to accept this nomination? The answer is we actually do want for people to feel the call from God. So that means that if someone can say, says that, well, I just feel no call, is that a valid response? This is very thin ice to walk on here. And I would say that because of our people's general sense of not putting ourselves forward, we are probably not always the best judge of our own selves. And if the church calls, give heed to it unless you have a strong revelation to test by counseling with the brethren. So my, my question is, uh, does a candidate who is nominated have to accept this nomination? Like, could it be that they won't? That's possible, but not probable. If I nominate a brother who is not ordained, does that mean I lack spiritual discernment? Again, the answer is no, because there are multiple brethren who would uh, be qualified. So remember, it is the congregation's sacred responsibility and solemn duty to nominate qualified candidates above reproach. By the way, that those uh, qualifications that uh, that we enumerate uh, from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 can be divided into about uh, four different classifications. Candidates above reproach in his inner life, in his home life, in his church life, and in his community life. So in summary, in the Old Testament kingdom age, the spirit came upon prophets. In the New Testament church age, the spirit dwells in the church. We should be aware of the carnal error of looking only on a man's outward appearance and exercise spiritual discernment as to a man's inner qualities. Build upon the strengths and shore up the weaknesses of our way, ordaining members. And it is a truism, no chapter or verse, just the sum total of the scriptural record that the spiritual condition of the congregation determines to what extent the Holy Spirit can lead and bless a congregation with church leaders that will prosper their congregation. We can rest assured that the outcome of our spiritual work will be God's will as certainly 
as if he sent Samuel pour out anointing oil on someone's head. It's just as sure to be the will of God when the Spirit dwells in his temple and he's working through each one of us. So we have that confidence that uh, the outcome of our work will be the will of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, just now we come to you and pray that you would, as we undertake as a congregation, to call, identify, and ordain a pastor to provide food for our souls and to care, help care for us spiritually. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us discernment, understanding, and good insight. Spare us from the way in which even Samuel, your prophet, was inclined to look on the outward appearance and give us spiritual discernment to look within the heart of these brothers. Brothers, and, not, and we pray that as we evaluate the brethren, that you would help us to do it in a charitable manner with, without a critical spirit, but exercise love toward one another as we undergo this exercise of calling from among us, one of us, to this office of a pastor. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn it back to uh, you, Sean.